And welcome to episode 43 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. We're going to talk in this episode about Barlow's and Mounts. It sounds like a law firm. <laughs> it does sound like, yeah, or, or at least insurance at the very least. Now that I'm reading this aloud, sometimes when you write things and then you read it, it sounds a whole lot different. But, yes, uh, James, yes. We've been chatting some back and forth about mm -hmm. Barlow's and Mounts. So uh, maybe we'll start with Barlow's. What do you think? Uh, you know what? B, B comes before M in the alphabet, so this makes good logical sense to me. There you go. So uh, what Barlow's do you own? Or maybe we should start here. So what is a Barlow exactly? So a Barlow, um, you insert that into the focuser, and then you put an eyepiece into the Barlow. And what a Barlow does is it's basically a magnifier. So hmm. they all have various ratings from you know, strange ones like a 1.6 to more common, like two times or three times. Yeah. Those and basically, common, yeah. 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 So like a two times Barlow would take a 24 millimeter eyepiece and make it behave like a 12 millimeter eyepiece. Um, and then it also does some other things like a, a true Barlow extends the eye relief as well. Like I think it yeah. usually doubles it or something like that. Well, that was my next question is why, why would you want to do this anyway? What's the point? Well, so one of the big selling features with the Barlow, let's just say you had an eyepiece collection of uh, three eyepieces. Pick whatever focal lengths you want. Buying one Barlow doubles your collection, right? Because you divide each one of those uh, focal lengths by two or by the factor of your Barlow. Let's assume it's a two times Barlow. Um, and you essentially have all these new focal lengths in your collection. So mm -hmm. if you plan out your eyepiece purchases with a Barlow uh, in your plan, you can cover kind of all the focal lengths you could ever dream of. So essentially, it saves you from having to buy six eyepieces. You buy three in a Barlow and you're done sort of mm. thing. I yeah, think that's, that's, how, that's how I started. Um, I started with actually, uh, I think only two eyepieces and a Barlow. Because mm -hmm. I, I actually figured you could get away with that. And I did for a number of years. So I bought a 32 and an 11. And then uh, that gave me a 16 and a five and a half. And I oh, had yeah. uh, an eight inch or 200 millimeter uh, aperture reflector with a 1200 millimeter focal length. So that gave me, uh, I, I think, like those four powers, that's, that's a great range. So low power, um, whatever it was, 30 odd power my lowest power 40 odd power and then uh right up to like i think around like 180 power which is pretty much your your max power on a on a good night yeah yeah it, it it's a very efficient way to build out a collection and i did the exact same thing too when i started into the hobby um i bought uh, an antares i think it was called an antares ultima two times oh. barlow yeah and uh it, it, it was an inch and a quarter and i believe my eyepiece selections were pretty close to what you had. Like I, I had the 32 millimeter Teleview Plossel. Mm -hmm. And then I had the Antares Spears Waller. I want to say it was like a 14 millimeter, maybe okay. or 12. I, I can't remember what focal length it was, but it essentially covered off with the Barlow. It covered off, um, you know, a, a pretty good range to go from high power to low power. Yeah. Huh. So there's, there's a, a few different types of Barlows or, or Barlow type devices. Now, most Barlows that uh, you're going you're gonna to see in a telescope store or in, a, in an ad, they're just going to be the regular uh, doublets. And most of them are going to be a 2X or 3X, but, but there's some other, like you said, uh, funky ones. 
And now, like, you know, it seems more recent, but I think these have been out for, for a number of years now is these uh, telecentric uh, barlows, which have four or five elements or something like that. And the most widely known is the PowerMate by uh, and, uh, Teleview. And you've had a couple of these. I think they have a two and a half, uh, five in the one and a quarter. And then I think they have a two times or something like that. In the, two, in the a two, two times and a four times for two and a four times, yeah. Yeah. And then now, in the past few years, uh, Explorer Scientific has come out with with a few. I think they have like a two, a three, and a five, or four, or something like that. And then uh, private uh, individual uh, Harry Siebert online apparently makes really good ones too. And he'll make just about anyone you want. Makes makes really odd size, like one point five, one point six, one point seven, all the way up to you know four or something like that. Uh, but he'll just basically make whatever you, whatever you want. And then, and this is something uh, you and I have gotten into, is these extenders. And we use uh, 1.7x uh, Q extenders in our, in our Takahashi telescopes. And they even make other extenders. So these ones that we have actually fit in and they add to the telescope tube itself, which I think might be unique to, to Takahashi. But then there's also other extenders and a lot of other companies have used these, which... Uh, which sort of just slide in, I think, in front of the uh, in front of the diagonal. Yeah, yeah, and maybe a quick comment um, about that PowerMate class of uh, what are those ones? Telecentric, did you say? Tell that the optical design, I think, is telecentric. If, if okay. memory serves, yeah, yeah. What, so, among other things, they do a little differently is they they retain the eye relief on your eyepiece. So. A Barlow will increase your eye relief. Um, those telecentric designs keep the eye relief the same. So that- Or, or reduce that, it by half a percent or something. Okay, yeah. Which can be important because if you're using an eyepiece that already has long eye relief, like, um, you know, like your Pentex XWs, yeah. for example, putting a Barlow on them can make the eye relief almost uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Because they have 20 mils already and to, to shave off- a half millimeter or whatever on them isn't going to be a, a big game changer. So we, you and I both have kind of a love and hate relationship with these, uh, with these devices. I think in, in the start of the astronomy, you love it because it's going to, it's going to really help you get in, get a pile of eyepieces or I shouldn't say that it gives you several powers really quick. You buy two eyepieces, the Barlow, now you've got four powers without uh without breaking the bank and and so that is definitely a big pro um what are some of the other pros that you, that you can think of the extended eye relief um yeah extended eye relief uh, economical way to um uh, build your eyepiece collection and maybe a third one which is kind of repeating what we said but with a very specific use case um, when you get down to like really high powered eyepieces, like say three millimeters or, you know, some, anything below five millimeter, um, depending on the design of that eyepiece, like if it's an orthoscopic or something along those lines or a plausible, the eye relief is so tight that those eyepieces almost are unusable at those mm -hmm. really short focal lengths. So sometimes a Barlow is the preferred method to achieve really high powered views. You know, you could take a, an eight millimeter plossal, which has kind of tight eye relief, put a Barlow on it, say it two times, you'll get a four millimeter focal length with a much more comfortable or easier to use eye relief. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of people will use the Barlow specifically for high power scenarios, which is quite mm -hmm. helpful. 
in, in fact, like even a lot of the high, some of the high end eyepieces, like I believe your XO um, really just incorporates a Barlow inside of the eyepiece in a mm-hmm. sense. Yep. Half a Barlow in the, in the case of the 5.1, the, it's a Smythe lens. Right. And then, and then um, the 2.58 XO incorporates the doublet. Ah, okay. Okay. I'm just pulling this from memory. I could be wrong, but yeah. I, I don't think I am. Yeah. Is there any other benefits that you could think of listing for using one? Um, no, not really. So what are some of the, what are some well, of the distractions? Oh, go so ahead. Let, yeah. Let me throw out one more benefit that just came to mind. If you're doing um, any kind of observing that requires a filter or maybe not requires, but you just prefer to have a filter on there, um, you can, depending on your Barlow, uh, if it accepts filters, you can just leave the filter screwed into the Barlow. And then as you change eyepieces, it's a little less futzing around. The, the filter's already there. So that can be a little bit of a benefit. Ready for the cons? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so you and I have talked at length already about the, the futz factor. Yeah. It's a, pain, it's a pain to, you know, take your eyepiece out put the Barlow in, put the eyepiece in, take the eyepiece out, take the Barlow out, put the eyepiece back. Uh, you know, if you're moving up and down your, yeah. your focal lengths, it, it just becomes a hassle. I don't know what your thoughts are. I think you, you feel the same. Exactly. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, that's a big detractor for me. And that's one of the main reasons why I, I kind of almost stopped using them. But then I had a really profound experience. Um, oh, this would be a few years ago. I was in my backyard with my Skywatcher uh, 120 millimeter ED refractor. And this is one of those nights that's like a once a year night where the seeing was perfect. Jupiter was well positioned in the sky. It was in the spring. So Jupiter was kind Sounds of Sounds like all up. the planets just lined up for you. <laughs> the pl- they sure did. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, uh, I don't remember, I was using my Leica zoom. So mm-hmm. that goes from like, uh, like 17.8 millimeter to 8.9, I believe is its focal range. And I hit 8.9 and Jupiter was perfect. Like there is no boiling. The detail blew my mind. It was just stunning. Mm. Couldn't believe it. Um, and it was one of those nights that it was obvious. Uh, you, like you should throw more power on it because seeing is perfect. So I didn't have any other higher powered eyepieces. I just had a Teleview two times Barlow and a Teleview two and a half times PowerMate. Um, so I put the Barlow in, the two times Barlow, put the Leica into the Barlow um, and I started it. So I backed off the Leica zoom range to the lowest power and increased it a little bit. And all of a sudden it was like the seeing went bad like it just it wasn't crisp i wasn't able to see as much detail in the view mm. honestly wasn't that pleasing mm. um so i thought okay well i guess that's the limit of seeing tonight was my natural response you know i i can't go any higher than about nine millimeter which gives me a hundred times in that telescope and and that's just the way this guy is sometimes mm-hmm. so what i wanted to do was a little test um Earlier, I mentioned how the power mates don't change the eye relief on an eyepiece. I thought, I'll just stick the power mate in because I wanted to get a sense for how much that really impacted the eye relief between the Barlow and the power mate. And I was astonished when I looked through the Leica. So I'm even 
you know, I have even more power because, you know, two times Teleview Barlow, two and a half times Teleview PowerMate. Um, the view went back to being stunning. Mm. Um, and I cranked that Leica all the way to the lowest power and the view remained outstanding for that entire time. Huh. I went back to the Barlow because I thought maybe, you know, just a, an incident of seeing changing. Yeah. Went back to the Barlow and it was like, it went back to being kind of muddy, not very pleasing. Yeah. And like, you know, I don't mean to talk negatively about Teleview because they make outstanding gear. I have a number of their eyepieces and I love them. Maybe my Teleview Barlow wasn't the best one they've ever made because, you know, sometimes that can happen. Yeah. Um, but I got rid of it. <laughs> and yeah. since then, I, you know, I, I really am not a fan of Barlow's um, just because, you know, the more glass you add to that light path, the more potential there is for um, aberrations or, or poor quality or, or, or just taking away from the view. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually ended up selling that PowerMate as well. And uh, I do have two Barlow's in my possession today, though. Oh, yeah. And what do you have now? So I have, uh, well, the recently acquired TMB um, 1.8 times Barlow that they released with the Super Monocentrics. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't used this one yet, uh, but if you read about it on Cloudy Nights, uh, some people think it's one of the best ones that have ever been made. Uh, tonight, I hope to give it a try. Cool. It looks like our conditions will be okay. And the other one that I have is made by Bader, and it's, uh, it's the VIP Barlow. Uh, the reason I bought this one is a lot of like uh, Zoom owners use this Barlow in conjunction and it's like a lot of people report it to be of extremely high quality as well, kind of naked to the view, like it doesn't detract in any way. And the neat thing with this Barlow, although it, it's, again, it's more of a thoughts factor, but it's completely modular. So mm. you can vary the magnification that this Barlow provides. It comes to you in a two times configuration but you can remove spacers to lower that. Hmm. Um, I forget what the lowest setting is. I think it's like 1.3 or something, isn't it? Pretty low. Could be. Yeah, Something yeah, it like could that. be. And then you can also add spacers, which can increase it to really whatever you want. Um, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, have, yourself? I still have my Teleview two times, um, just because it was the first thing I ever bought for astronomy. And uh, I have... I have an Antares 1.6 2-inch, which I really like. And I, I actually use that a lot still. The reason why is that the Antares uh, fits in my diagonals. And I know, I know it fits in there quite well. It's very light, even though it's 2-inch. And the um, magnification factor of 1.6x uh, works really well with the staggering of eyepieces, being such that the two eyepieces used the most, anyway, are probably about the 10 and the 7. And so this gives me, I forget what it is with the 1.6. But anyway, uh, I think with the, the 10, it gives about a 6-something. And with the 7, it gives like a 4.4 or something like that. Um, and so that's a nice progression. So you have uh, a 10, a 7, a 6, uh, and a 4 and and that's nice uh mid high to high power range really for for my telescope so so the the Antares 1.6 gets a lot of use um it's a little bit of an inexpensive barlow and there's there's a little bit of a color uh chromatic uh, aberration uh, towards the edge the teleview is just the the old traditional uh 2x 
And I stopped using that when uh, I didn't realize that it was so long, like it's a long Barlow and the mm -hmm. part that goes into the telescope is pretty long. And I bought it when I was using a reflector. So this had no bearing on that. But then when I switched to mostly using refractors, I dropped it into one of my diagonals, like I think one of the first diagonals I ever had. And of course it strikes the mirror Oof. because it goes in, it, it, the, the nose piece on it is super long. Um, and so that really annoyed me because nowhere I had ever heard or read about that. I mean, you, you have to be careful. If you were doing it in the day and you could see it as you're inserting it, you might recognize that it's, that it's too long, but it's like just too long, you know, by maybe, I don't know, like a few millimeters or half a centimeter or something. So in the dark and kind of, you know, like you said, the futz factor, uh, you don't quite realize that. So uh, that didn't sit so well with me. Um, and then since that time, like I have, uh, have lots of adapters and, and different diagonals now that, that it does work in. Um, but one night I put it in my, I put my 10 millimeter into it, which is a, like a moderately long eyepiece and putting the 10 millimeter into that Barlow and then putting that contraption into an adapter to go into the, uh, the diagonal just, it seemed ridiculous. Like it, it doesn't sound like it would be like that crazy, but it really made like this sort of monstrous, ugly, very unwieldy eyepiece, um, you know? And, and so, uh, so I didn't care for that. And again, like, like what you're saying, you're putting more glass uh, into the, the optical path, but there are, there are some, some good uses for magnifiers. I really do enjoy the extender um, that's in my Takahashi because you, you put it in and then that's it. You've, you've just basically permanently changed uh, the focal length for, for your telescope until you, you're going to take it apart again and, and take it back to the original focal length. Um, and that more or less does seem to get out of the way. Although I do notice that does take a while to cool, eh? Like I've noticed. It does, it does add a lot to the cool down time. Yeah. Um, but I do like that it's, you know, it screws into the tube. So it, it's not a balance issue. Right. Like, you know, this TMB, uh, I don't, I don't know what this TMB Barlow weighs, but it's significant. And oh, really? I thought yeah, it yeah. Because it's not that big. No, that's exactly what I thought. And all of the super monos are, you know, very light, simple eyepieces. But like yeah. this is made out of, uh, you know, I think metal from a, a World War II tank or something like that. Wow. Yeah. But uh, so like, you know, putting this thing in is probably going to cause a balance issue for me. Um, yeah. Yeah, probably will. Probably will. So. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the the height of, of your eyepiece in that Teleview Barlow because um, this, this Bader VIP Barlow, it's it's a little tall as well. And the Leica zoom eyepiece, you've seen it. It's a tall, narrow eyepiece. And yeah. when it's inside of this Barlow, I'm probably, you know, 10 inches or so tall, I would imagine yeah. coming out of the diagonal. And one time I didn't have the diagonal, like, uh, you know, really tight, I guess, into the, um, oh, why can't I think of it? Uh, anyway, into the telescope, yep. the visual back. And, I put in the Leica and it just kind of rotated over and yeah. it was pointing downwards. You know, thank, thankfully I had all of the thumb screws done up so nothing yeah. slid out, but you know, it does kind of cause a, a weird balance issue even at the diagonal. Yeah. So it, it is just handy though, like kind of returning to, to owning some, like I've been looking at some because I would like to get more use out of, 
out of some of my eyepieces, like the, the 5.1 millimeter XO, it'd be nice to get a little bit more higher power out of it. Uh, maybe some of my pen taxes, because eventually like you just can't buy, you know, there's only one more pen tax I can buy, maybe two. Uh, then that's it. So if you want, if you want any more power or, or different magnifications, um, you, you know, using those same eyepieces, which, which I love, um, you've got to go to a Barlow. That's, that's your only option or to go to other eyepieces. Um, but you know, one of the things is, is that you are adding elements to, to your optical chain. And then the other thing is even for a minimalist set, like you're buying two eyepieces in the Barlow. And I think at the time that I bought it, the, the Barlow may have been more or around the same price as the Plossels I was buying. It might've been better to buy just two more Plossels or something, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. Then, then, to go, then to go that route. And I, and I think in actuality, you know, you can probably get by with three eyepieces. So I, I would almost encourage the, the purchase of three eyepieces instead of two eyepieces in a Barlow because really that that's all you need so for example how often did i use the you know i had the 32 11 the barlow which gave me 16 and 5.5 well how often did i use it at 16 not very often i used it mostly with the 11 for five and a half for viewing planets um but had i not bought that i could have just bought a five millimeter or six millimeter probably would have been better selection anyway so um you know there's that but now it's like you kind of if, if you want like particular powers or something then yeah having a, a barlow is can make a lot of sense otherwise you end up owning an awful lot of eyepieces which yeah. we're, get, we're getting to anyway <laughs> yeah yeah and and what we're saying is a little contrary and probably to what most people will, will read in books and and maybe even some websites because a lot of them do recommend you know getting a barlow and a lot of them will say that if you get a barlow of decent quality you won't see it in the light path mm. um, and that's probably true on most nights you know i don't think you'll notice the barlow there on you know average nights but if you you know if you end up with a night of really really good seeing yeah uh, you may notice it like i did the one night so so anyway i totally agree with what you're saying you know think about instead of spending the couple hundred dollars on a, a good Barlow, think about what kind of eyepiece you could buy with that. Or if you saved up a little longer to, uh, to, you know, take that Barlow money and, and just, you know, uh, get a, a good quality eyepiece to round off your collection. Yeah. Cause having like a ton of, of magnifications, although it sounds great cause you're like, Oh, I have all these magnifications, but like even like when I go and do uh, outreach or, or I'm doing observing with my astronomy class, um, you know, I take basically uh, a low power and a medium power and high power. So maybe something like a 30, a 12 and a five. And that's what I use. And like, so if, and typically if I'm going out to do astronomy, I'm taking something like that. You know, I pick one of my low, you know, even though I have many low power IPs, I just take one take a medium power like i have a nice 12 and a half and then i take uh you know i might take like the seven and the ten and the barlow or something like that but you know i i you know I'm fairly advanced and and that's kind of where i'm max getting what i want to take out at night and i do see lots of some people will take a whole pile of eyepieces and you know you're just not really gonna be able to make use of of so many eyepieces like having see lots of people with like a 32, 25, 20, 18, 15, 
10, you know, like that, that that's kind of overkill. You, you don't need that. You really need, like I said, really it's like three eye pieces. Maybe if you're really getting into it, maybe, maybe four or five and, and maybe a Barlow at, at that point. But honestly, the Barlow that I have super cheap works really good, you know, and a lot of the other Barlows are, are more expensive. I think, I don't know how much they are now, maybe like a hundred bucks or so when I bought it, it was like 60 or $70. Um, so that, that's kind of where I'm at. I like the price. I like the performance. There, there's no eyepiece I could have bought for that price anyway. So, yeah, you know, I think, yeah. I think, I think it does its job, but anyway, that, that's kind of my bit on Barlow's. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's good. Um, and, and I'll just echo your last little bit there. Like when I go deep sky observing, um, under a dark sky, it's a the wide field eyepiece goes in and it probably doesn't come out until my session's done at the end of the night. Yeah. I, I rarely go to anything of any serious magnification. Um, and then if I'm doing planetary stuff, I usually will put in as much power as the seeing will tolerate. And once I figure out what that power is, that power stays in for the rest of the night too. So I'm really not switching a lot in that case either. Yeah. So, uh, so we, uh, talk about mounts a little bit now. Yeah. The saga, the cursed mount. Yeah. So I end up ordering the wrong mount. I click the wrong link. Um, even though we were chatting about the, the GTI, got the GTE. There's only one real difference. The GTI allows you to point and track. The GTE is pretty much full go-to. Um, and I did try it. It worked awesome. The GTE. But I don't think I could ever fully break like the habit of there's the moon or there's Jupiter. I want to look at it and pointing the telescope to go there. And my understanding of reading the manual and reading stuff online is you really shouldn't do that with the, with the E. So, so I kind of used it once and with my phone and panned it around the sky to different objects and uh, just not the way that I observe. So uh, the mount has gone back and then I'm going to get the, the GTI and pay the difference. The difference being 50 bucks, but my understanding, and I'm not really sure, like, you know, it's not that the distributors or manufacturers ever really tell you, I'm not really sure why they made the two. It seems like they made the GTI maybe first, and then a lot of people wanted more, like, go-to functionality, and some people just wouldn't push to at all. So they came out with this, and the price point is 50 or 60 bucks less. So anyway, so that's well, where we are. But there's, uh, go ahead. I'm just saying, I was going to say you're, you're getting, you're getting closer to the end. I hope. I, I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so too. But there's really two different types, two main types of mounts. And what are those? Cause you, you actually have the two main types. I don't. Yeah. So there's a alt as mount, um, which is short for altitude and azimuth. Um, and it's basically just up, down, left, right movements. Very simple, very intuitive. Um, and then, and, and those are the mounts that you and I typically use. Mm -hmm. They're usually not motorized. They're manual. Um, they're very simple, but they always work. You don't have to worry about alignment. You just plop it and go. Mm -hmm. Um, now the other mount that's widely used is, uh, it's known as an EQ mount or equatorial. Uh, astrophotographers will typically use these, um, a number of go-to mounts or tracking mounts will be equatorial. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And um, an equatorial, uh, you have to align it. Well, you have to level it. Then you have to align it. Um, it has to be pointed directly at the North Star. 
Um, and then the movement is not up, down, left, right. It's kind of weird, um, but it, it compensates for the rotation of the earth, which is why astrophotographers uh, like to use it. Um, and it's the best mount for astrophotography. You can get alt as mounts that track, like you were just talking about, the, the AZ GTE, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they track. They're not as good or um, as accurate as what astrophotographers need. But for yep. guys like you and I that are visual observers, yep. it's so nice to have a tracking mount for high power obs observations, um, particularly of the planets. Otherwise, it just moves through the, the field of view far too quickly. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like what you're saying is that there's electronic versions uh, and manual versions of, of both the... Uh, the Altaz and, and the Equatorial, as well as go-to versions of each. So there's kind yes. of like sort of like three different types of, of these uh, two types of mounts. So what mounts do you currently uh, own, Shane? Oh, gee, too many. <laughs> um, so I have a, um, maybe I'll start small and, and work my way up the scale here. So for Alt-As mounts, I have a Stellarview M1 mount. Um, it, it's great for small telescopes. It goes on a photographic tripod and, uh, it's very simple up, down, left, right has two tensioning knobs for each of the axes and it's quite stable. Like I use my 61 millimeter William optics on there as well as my 76 millimeter Takahashi and it handles both of those quite well. Um, I have, I, I recently ordered its bigger brother, um, the M2C. Um, and, and, and that was going to become like my prime time kind of dark sky mount. Um, and then I ended up getting that deal on that sky team mount <laughs> not too long ago, uh, which kind of makes my M2C stellar view almost, you know, redundant. Like I, I don't mm. really need that mount. So I gotta, I might end up selling that. Um, I also have an Explorer scientific twilight two mount, which is very similar to the sky T except, uh, it doesn't have the slow motion controls and a couple other bells and whistles it does not have. But the Sky T and the Twilight 2, uh, you can mount two telescopes on it on mm. kind of the left and the right side of the mount. So, you know, it seems like that might be fun and cool, but really you can only use one telescope at a time for the most part. So it, yeah. it's kind of a, it's no, not really a feature you need, I don't think. Yeah. Um. So, and then uh, I do have a equatorial mount. It's a, it, so Los Mandy makes uh, a GM8 and a GM11 are their real popular mounts. But a, a little while ago, they made one for Celestron and it's known as the GM or the G9, I think. And uh, they made it for, um, or Celestron was selling a nine and a quarter inch Smith Cassegrain and they commissioned Los Mandy to make this mount for that telescope and, and packaged it up and sold it. And uh, I came across one that was used and I, uh, I bought it and it has lived in my observatory in the backyard for quite a while. Um, it's not a go-to mount, but it does do tracking. So it, you know, I put a battery on it. I, I uh, align it to the North star and uh, away I go. Anything I pointed at, it'll track, and it does an outstanding job of that. Huh. So, so that's what I have in my collection. Heard good things about those uh, G9s. They're very stable. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, like I, I can put my 120 millimeter Skywatcher on, which is, you know, it's not just a, a big aperture; it's a very long telescope as well. 
Yeah, big and, moment arm, they say. Yeah, and I tell you, like, it's so stable on that mount. Like, at, mm. at high magnifications, there's, there's no vibration at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's really, really nice. But it's a heavy mount. It's not, <laughs> it's not easy to, you know, pull around the yard or whatever. Um, yeah. So some trade-offs there. So what do you have, Chris? Well, I've got uh, some, some pretty small mounts compared to, to you, but uh, I do have a few. I've got uh, two Universal Astronomics mounts. And uh, Universal Astronomics is, I'm not sure if they're making mounts at present. They might still be making a couple of these smaller ones. Um, but they were a great company. They've sort of quasi shut down when, when the owner uh, moved. And uh, I, I think that they were underpriced because, you know, I bought a MicroStar mount from them and I forget what I paid for it. And I was thinking, well, I'll get it and then maybe I'll, I'll upgrade to something else, uh, you know, once I had the money. But it was, it was a really, really good mount. I kind of wore it out um, and I use it now mostly for, for binoculars. But uh, it could probably be, it probably needs new Teflon and probably needs a few other parts. And it was a really early model. I don't even know that it was publicly for sale. He had made some for a NASA expedition. I called him and asked for one because I'd seen a, an image of it in a magazine um, as part of the NASA mission. And so he knocked one out for me out of the spare parts from that. Um, and it worked really, really well. So then when I was trying to create like the absolute smallest go-to package when I was on that quest a few years ago, I uh, talked to him again and he was making these micro stars. And they are a one pound mount. And I'll tell you, this like is a refined product versus the, the one that I bought, you know, 15 years ago or whenever it was. Um, and boy, uh, sorry, it's a dwarf star, not a micro star. It's a dwarf star. And it holds my 60 millimeter beautifully. It's an amazing mount for just one pound. Um, perfect for the 60, perfect for traveling, just disappears into the luggage and it goes on any tripod. And it can fit in my pocket. Yeah, that's a, I love that little mount. It's just for how small it is and for how well it works. Uh, yeah. It's incredible. It is. It really, really is an amazing mount. Uh, sort of on the opposite end of a Takahashi Lapides modified, which is like really like almost a 10 pound mount. And it's manual, but I had, it had slow motion controls on it, which I threw away. And I got these long aluminum knobs for tracking high power and it does that beautifully. Um, but I really want the ability to point out a planet and to track. So that's why I've gone to the AZ GTI soon to be arriving at my door, hopefully this week. Oh, wow. That, that quick. That's really good. I, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I've sent the, the GTE back. So, so, you know, we'll see. So the hope is there to, to actually have a mount that I can put on uh, Mars or Jupiter or one of the planets and then, and then have it track and maybe even get it rigged up so that I could like, uh, for example, find Mercury uh, during the day and observe it as it's, as it's going overhead uh, carefully to, to avoid the sun and that sort of thing. But I've got a pretty good spot for, for doing that kind of observing as well. So mm-hmm. that's the hope. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason why we'd like to have a tracking mount for the planets, I, I think there's probably two main reasons. Uh, one only applies to you uh, and that's your sketching. And that's because I just haven't done that yet. <laughs> mm. um, you know, when you, when you're sketching, you don't want to have to be nudging the telescope because that just doesn't work very well. Um, but the other thing is like, 
and I think we maybe have mentioned it on a recent podcast is if you're observing the planets, you really should just say tonight is a planet night. And maybe even tonight is just a Jupiter night or tonight mm. is just a Saturn night. Uh, and what you should do is dedicate uh, some time to that an hour or two, at least I would say of just observing that planet. Now your eye isn't glued to the eyepiece that entire time you need to, you know, take some breaks, but you should really observe a planet over a period of time to just take in all of the detail and, and you'll be surprised the longer you go, kind of the more you see typically, at least as long as seeing doesn't get really crappy on you. Um, and having a tracking mount just makes that so much easier if you're going to spend that kind of time looking at a planet. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So, hmm. so any advice on picking, picking a mount chain? Like how did you settle on the mounts that you have? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, so you need to know the weight of your setup. Now, you have to be a little careful with this too, because you'll go online and, you know, manufacturers will say the telescope weighs five pounds. Let's just say, for example, which would probably be a small or a light telescope, but whatever the weight rating is that they give you, it's typically just a bare bones telescope that doesn't include rings to mount it. The dovetail, that's also part of the mounting aspect. Uh, it won't include a finder usually, uh, it won't include the weight of the, the diagonal or the eyepiece. Um, so you have to factor the weight of your entire package. And if you're doing astrophotography, same thing, you know, what is your camera weight? When you have all of that figured out, um, then you look for your mount and all mounts will have a capacity rating. However, I would never go anywhere near the maximum rating. You know, if, if you have a 10 pound setup, and you try to get a 10 amount rated for 10 pounds, I, I'd be willing to bet that you're going to run into some vibrations because you're really, you know, you're at the extreme limit for that mount. And if you want to avoid vibrations, um, then you have to, you, you, you kind of, the term is overmount. So for a 10 pound setup, you might look for a, a mount that can handle 20 pounds. And then you'll probably have a much better experience. The, the motion will usually be a little bit better and hopefully you won't have any, uh, any vibrations. Um, you know, the other thing to think about are some of the bells and whistles. Do you want, uh, do you want the ability to have some slow motion controls, which are kind of nice, but not always needed? Do you want the ability to track an object? Um, sometimes that's nice, but again, not always needed. Um, I even recommend too, like if you're, if you're shopping for a mount, go up, if you can, you know, if you're, especially if you belong to an astronomy club, go observe with some people that own these mounts, but pay real close attention to the setup and the takedown of those mounts. Uh, you know, Chris, you and I have been out to star parties and observing yep. with other folks where they have, uh, typically it's a, a Smith Cassegrain because it's on some sort of a go-to mount. Um, you know, I've watched these guys set it up, which takes a long, a lot longer than it takes me with my simple alt as mount. Yes. Yeah. You know, they, they got to, they need power. They got to plug it in. They do their two or three star alignment. Um, and I, you know, I'm 45 minutes into my observing session and they could still be setting up. And then all of a sudden something goes wrong. You know, the, yeah. the, the tracking 
goes wonky and they have to realign or, or in the darkness, somebody kicks the leg of the telescope. So you, now you're no longer aligned and you have to do all that stuff all over again. And then at the end of the night, you know, I quickly detach my telescope, put it in the vehicle, collapse the tripod, put it in the vehicle and I'm ready to go home. Yeah. We're like you know, five minute tear down. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of these guys haven't even unplugged their battery yet, you know, and, and it's just, there's, I guess the point is there's a lot more involved with some of these tracking mounts uh, in particular. And if you want to go down that path, just be aware of what you're getting yourself into. Cause there's certainly uh, there's, there's more time on both sides, setting up and taking down. Um, and then even in just the, the performance. So it is nice to, to try before you buy. And that's, uh, that's the benefit of observing with some other people. You can mm -hmm. often, you know, get an idea of what this other gear is like. So yeah. that's probably my, my biggest thing. And then maybe one other point is that the mount is half of it. The other half is the tripod. Uh, you can end up with a very stable mount, but if it's on a weak tripod, you're still going to end up with vibrations and, and, and be frustrated. So you have to match both aspects to ensure you have a good experience. Um, and then tripods are probably a whole nother discussion. You know, there's metal, there's wood, there's different capacities um, and, and some bells and whistles there that you can also choose. Do you have any tips, Chris, for picking a, a mount or tripod or? Yeah, don't um fret about buying a mount separate from the tripod because you know I, I can understand you know uh you may wish to purchase a new mount head um but tripods uh come up for sale uh very inexpensively and so my recommendation would be to to split it out and kind of see what tripod comes with uh that originally and then um you know try to maybe even go up you know, like some tripods have an inch or an inch and a half uh, diameter legs, maybe go up to a one and three quarters inch leg um, and buy it separate. You can often uh, get a package that's a little bit better um, and a little bit less expensive by, by kind of splitting things up. Um, you know, often that is the case with the astronomy stuff. The package deals aren't necessarily deals. <laughs> so true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, sometimes you you need to upgrade certain aspects of it to get what you want. Yeah. Well, Shane, I'm getting tired. I stayed up all night. So <laughs> it's, it's nap time. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. I was up uh, for like two hours observing Mars. So uh, waiting for the seeing to improve and it never really did get to where I wanted it. But, uh, but uh, do you have anything else to add to this episode? That is all I have, sir. Well, that's great. Well, uh, how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at actual astronomy. You can email us. We are actual astronomy at gmail.com. And then we are now on YouTube. So all of the podcast episodes are available there and you can leave comments and we'll reply. And maybe one sidebar note, if you're new to the podcast, um, you know, we have a bit of a backlog now of episodes and not all of the episodes are time sensitive. So if you haven't, perused what's there there's some stuff on astrophotography uh there's some stuff on just getting to know the universe um so there's some there's some episodes and topics that are kind of timeless so uh feel free to dig into that to find some topics that you might want to listen to all right well thanks shane thank you sir and thank you to everybody for listening <laughs>